Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. Man, well, good morning, everybody. Happy Pentecost Sunday. How are we doing today? Great. Wonderful, wonderful. Man, uh, just uh, today we're celebrating, obviously, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's church in Acts chapter 2, just as Jesus promised, and it changed everything. And we've sung about it, we've read scriptures about it today. And I actually, I've seen this video uh, in pieces multiple times as we produced it. It takes a long time to have subtitles in two different languages, let me tell you. It takes a lot of work. Um, but the one thing I did not notice until this morning was standing up here in the front with Jose and one of our other worship leaders, Lens, who's right there, which didn't the worship team do a fantastic job today. Can we honor them? <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, team, so much. And uh, Lens was watching the video. And did you notice the part when he said in the video that I came in here and then I didn't understand anything Pastor Trevor was saying and he starts crying that he felt something. Let me tell you, I'm not that good of a preacher, okay? <laughs> I'm not that good. I'm just not. I wish I was. But that's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in God's church that bridges language barriers with the presence of God. And Lenz was the one who noticed and said, that's Acts chapter 2, right? There were people in Acts chapter 2 literally started speaking other languages as they were enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit is alive and at work in this room today, speaking in English and in Spanish and in any other language that people would come to meet and know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen? It's awesome. So I'm so grateful for that. Thank you, Lord. Let's give a hand to the Lord one more time for what he's doing in our church. Thank you, Jesus. Man, so great, so great. And uh, so, man, I, I can't even, I just, I'm having a hard time getting over that, but I'm just going to have to because we have stuff to talk about today. So um, before I jump into our message, I want to tell you guys something about that's very, very exciting. Um, many of you know Jose, who's been our worship leader here. If you're a partner here, if you've gone to any informational gatherings, you know that we are planning on making Jose the campus pastor here at the East Campus. So I want, wait, just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. I'm proud to say on June 6th, Pastor Dale is going to be here and we're going to install Jose as the campus pastor here officially at East Campus. Now you can clap for that. That's great, right? So Jose and Giselle, would you guys stand up? Would you guys stand up? So if you have not met Jose and Giselle, they are wonderful, godly people. You guys could say I won't embarrass you a whole lot more. Um, they're wonderful, godly people. If you haven't met them yet, go meet them in the lobby afterward. Um, let me tell you, we've been praying for this day ever since uh, we became a partnership together when Good Shepherd became the East Campus of Community of Hope. We've been hoping and praying for the day to be able to establish a campus pastor here. That day is here. It is now. God has answered our prayers. This church is having a young, bilingual, Holy Spirit-filled, Jesus-filled couple here to reach this community in the name of Jesus. And the future is brighter than ever before for this church. Yeah. So, um, love you guys. It's just amazing what God has done. So, so happy for this. So excited for that. So, June 6th and two weekends. Make sure you're here. It's going to be a big celebration. It's going to be an important day in the history of our church. Great. 
Great. Awesome. Good. All right. So if you haven't already, we're going to jump into our message. If you haven't already, go and take out your COH app or your sermon notes or your phone or however you take notes. Grab your Bible. Uh, grab your, I don't know, like your, your I was going to say tablet, but you know, I was, I was thinking like stone tablets, like Flintstones, but people actually pull out their iPads. However you take notes, I don't care. Grab something to take notes with. We're going to jump on into our message for today. We are in week six or seven. I think it's seven actually. For our series, we're calling Mistaken Identity. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on this series. And what we're talking about in this series of Mistaken Identity is the different misconceptions that people have about God. Now, if you've been with us for several weeks, you already know the gist of this. You know the spiel behind it all. But for those of you who are new here today, let me just catch you up on where we've been. We're talking about misperceptions that people have about God. We're lifting the hood, kicking the tires on things that people believe about God, either with their mind or believe about God with their gut. Maybe it's something they picked up in their childhood. Maybe it's something that somebody said to them that they just kind of caught and just stuck to them all throughout their life. Sometimes people overtly believe things about God that aren't true, and sometimes we accidentally believe things about God that aren't true. We've talked about, uh, last week we talked about bad boss God. For those of you who feel like God is a taskmaster and everything's never good enough. We've talked about angry God. We've talked about a genie in a bottle God where everything's transactional. We've talked about bodyguard God. We've talked about all these different, what we're calling false mistaken identities of who God is and what happens when you unintentionally believe something that is not true about God. When you unintentionally believe one of these mistaken identities about God, it will do one of two things. One, it will keep you shallow in your faith and your understanding, your walk with Christ. Or it will cause you to walk away all together. That's why this is so important. So our theme verse we've been talking through in this series comes from um, one of the books of the New Testament, which is called the book of Hebrews, which oftentimes if people are new to the Bible, think there's Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament is the Hebrew scriptures, and New Testament is the story of Jesus and his followers. Sometimes they think Hebrews is in the Old Testament. Nope, it's actually in the New Testament. The Bible's not confusing at all. Right. So we're in the book of Hebrews, and actually this is an unknown book. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Most of every other book in the Bible, we know who wrote it, especially in the New Testament in the epistles of Paul or some of the other letters from, uh, let's say, Peter, for instance. Um, but Hebrews, we don't know um, because it wasn't necessarily a letter. Scholars think that this book, Hebrews, was actually a sermon. And we, we think that this is a sermon manuscript that's been preserved by the early church till now. And the message is timeless, nonetheless, with whoever wrote it. Maybe Paul, maybe Apollos, maybe somebody else. We don't know. But anyway, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and let's read this out loud all together. Ready, go. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what we're saying here in this series, you've heard me say it like a broken record, is that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. God is Christ-like because God is Christ. That's what we're saying. Um, In our church, we talk about a lot of spiritual things. We talk about God a lot, but we talk a lot about Jesus and we make much of Jesus because the Bible says that there's something unique, specific, distinctive about Jesus, in particular, which we believe is God revealed to humanity. So if you have ever wondered, I wonder what God is like. 
you have to look no further than Jesus. And that's the message of Christianity. Now, so here's what we've been doing each week in our series. Uh, we've gone through a little bit of a format that's helped people along. We've done the same thing every single week where we talk about a problematic idea around each mistaken identity. We talk about a disclaimer. So there's a problematic idea behind this God that people sometimes accidentally pick up. And then a disclaimer, because most of these are built on half-truth. They're like, now what we're not saying is, I don't unintentionally want to create any more controversy than all the controversy our culture has endured this year. Sweet Lord Jesus, pray for me, okay? So we're not saying certain things. We're going to make that abundantly clear. We're not saying something else, but here's what we eventually are saying. What's the truth about God and how does that truth challenge our lives. So this week, you want to know the mistaken identity we're talking about? It is anti-ask God. Anti-ask. Make sure the K is pronounced real good there at the end. Anti-ask. You got that. That was a little slow burn right there. Anti-ask God. Anti-ask God. Who is the anti-ask God? Well, this is the God who cannot handle tough questions. This is the God who says, don't rock the boat, go with the flow, let's all just stick with the program, God. That's who this God is. Now what lies just under the surface of this type of God is an idea that sounds like this. If you have hard questions about faith, you can't ask it. Because if you do, the whole thing is like a house of cards that will collapse in on itself. So just don't ask it all together. Anti-ask. Anti-ask God. And so there's an inordinate pressure whenever somebody enters a religious environment a lot like this. Um, just to assume the position, learn the language, get down the body posture, and eventually every, you'll just catch up. Like some people, I really believe, start coming to church and they never engage with their questions that they have. They never engage with their mind because they feel like they're not allowed to. So they just look around, try to do what everyone else is doing. They try to fit in if they even want to fit in. And eventually what people end up doing is they do a churchy thing. They fake it. And they fake faith. And eventually if you're faking it just so you can fit in enough and you're like not actually asking the hard questions that you have in your head, you just bury them, you fake it long enough. Eventually you think, is everyone else faking it around here? One of my um, uh, one of my favorite comedians. I'm not going to tell you his name because I don't want you to look it up because I shouldn't talk about that. And it, well, I should say this. I heard somebody say something funny one time that I would never recommend anybody listen to. Can I just do that? Okay. All right. Great. Um, this one comedian I listened to one time. Uh, he writes in Hollywood and you know writes shows and movies and whatnot. And he marvels at sometimes the bad things that people have to write in Hollywood. Not bad as in like immoral, but bad as in like that stinks. <laughs> that idea is horrible. And he jokes about how there's a cult classic movie apparently that nobody went and saw, but somehow got made anyway called Deathbed, the bed that eats people. Does that sound like an Oscar winner or what? And he jokes, this comedian talks about this idea of deathbed, the bed that eats people, that somewhere, somehow, some person was writing this movie, and one of two things happened. They were either completely into it, like it was the best idea ever, or they were a normal person who was like writing, and halfway through they realized, oh no, I'm writing deathbed, the bed that eats people. This is a horrible idea. And they go, no, I'm going to finish this. And they just plow through it anyway, not allowing their own internal sensors to tell them to quit doing it. 
I think a lot of people treat faith that way. Where they might have questions about Christianity, questions about the Bible, questions about God, about suffering, about existence. And they're coming to church and they're trying to just make it happen and then a question pops up. And they have what's called cognitive dissonance come up. Like where you have an idea and it's kind of painful to think about so you just don't think about. They have cognitive dissonance and instead of going, I wonder, they believe in anti-ask God. Like I'm not allowed to ask those questions. No, and they just plow through anyway. And their faith never goes anywhere. Or they just walk out the door because they think Christianity doesn't hold intellectual water. Interesting, right? Now, here's the problematic idea behind anti-ask God. The problematic idea, again, this is a half-truth, is that we're going to put it up on the screen. People believe in anti-ask God that good Christians just believe. You ever had anybody tell you that before? Why can't you just believe? Now, obviously, belief is an important part of Christianity. We're going to get to that in a second. But this is the problematic idea behind anti-ask God. They think questions means doubt. That questions means the opposite of faith. Um, I had a friend who um, is part of our church, uh, just a wonderful guy, and uh, he's a detective. And uh, we first met at a bowling birthday party, which I'm a horrible bowler. Anybody else here terrible at bowling? Great. Like, I'm consistently under 100, and you know it's bad when you're in your 30s and people go, do you need us to put the bumpers up? Get out of here. So we're at a bowling birthday party. I never met this guy before with some friends from our small group from church, and so it was kind of just, a, you know, whatever. And um, he found out I was the pastor of the church of all of our group of friends. And one of those things happens when people find out that you're the pastor. One of two things happens. Either they go, oh, you do what? Great. And they just kind of leave you alone. Or sometimes they ask you all the questions in the world. Um, That's especially horrible on a plane like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor of a church. Let me tell you what I think about the end times. Like, oh, no. And then there's sometimes people like my friend who have legit questions and they've never gotten to sit down with somebody like a pastor before. And so we're sitting there in the middle of a bowling alley eating like $2 pizza and stale soda. And he starts telling me about his struggles with faith. Where they, his wife had taken him to our church once or twice. He didn't grow up religious. He didn't grow up around faith. Didn't grow up around Christianity whatsoever. And he wanted to believe because he wanted to make his wife happy, which is not the worst thing in the world. But he just couldn't because he was a detective. And detectives live evidence-based lives. And he's like, I'm looking at the evidence and I'm looking at the facts and I have questions, but everybody in my life is telling me, why can't you just believe? And so I feel shamed that I think this way, that I'm wired this way, and so I'm faking it, but it's not working. I don't know what to do. And we talked for like 45 minutes while everyone else was bowling. We're having a holy conversation in a bowling alley. Showing up in middle life sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up only on Sunday mornings. Jesus shows up in the messy places of our lives. Amen. And so we talked. And I told him, listen, man, I'm not trying to get you to, your wife to come to our church or you come to church. We have this thing called the skeptics course that like questions are allowed. You should just come. And he did. And he asked questions and he investigated the evidence and came to the conclusion that Jesus actually rose from the dead. 
He said, hey, can we go get food? We have lunch at a burger fry over in Wellington. And he said, I'm ready. I'm like, you ready to eat? I'm like, no. I'm ready to become a Jesus follower. I don't know what to do. I just need somebody to tell me what to do. I led him to Christ at a burger fight, and he cried over his fries, his burger, and all the attenders there were like, see how good our food is? <laughs> yeah. But um, I led this detective, young dad in our community to Christ at that burger fight. We baptized him. He's been a part of our small groups. They serve. They're a wonderful family in our church. God's doing awesome things. He got told for the longest time Good Christians just believe, so why can't you? Richard Dawkins, famous um, atheist, I mean, he's part of the New Atheist, and he wrote in his book, The God Delusion. Um, by the way, it's okay to read books you disagree with. Did you know that? He wrote in The God Delusion, one of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. He believes in anti-ask God. That that's the God of the Bible. Anti-ask. Now, remember, here's the disclaimer. What I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that this doesn't take faith. I'm not saying it doesn't take belief. I'm not saying that at all. Faith is important. Belief is important. It's the core of Christianity that we're saved by faith alone through grace alone. Like in Hebrews eleven six, so we start chapter one. Let's go all the way to chapter eleven. We put this on the screen. The author says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, and He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So faith clearly matters, and I'm not saying it doesn't. In fact, if you're somebody who struggles with faith and what your intellectual questions might be and some of those things, let me just tell you, faith not only plays into spiritual things, faith plays into all sorts of different parts of life. I remember when my wife Leah and I, we were dating, and um, from the summer of 2008 and on, she was utterly convinced it was time for us to get engaged, and so was I, but I did the, I'm dragging my feet a little bit, and um it was time. It was time for me to put a ring on her finger. Right, ladies? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And um, if you like, you should have put a ring on it. Well, I did. So there you go. And um, can I tell you the part that I was most nervous about with proposing to my wife, Leah? I was not nervous at all the morning I proposed to her, and I did it in front of 300 people with, like, song and dance, literally, Okay. Um, I was not nervous to ask her parents for her hand in marriage and for their blessing. I was nervous, awfully nervous, shaking, sweating, nervous, calling her dad to schedule the appointment to ask them for their blessing. I was walking out in front of my house. I remember it was like nine o'clock at night on a Tuesday and I was pacing out. I was pacing on the sidewalk and one of my buddies was with me. He's like, you could do it, man. I'm like, quit. You're freaking me out. You could do it. And I eventually called and Leah's dad's name is Paul. And I, uh, hi, uh, Paul. Um, this, is, this is Trevor. Hi, Trevor. Is everything okay? <laughs> yes, sir. Everything's fine. I was wondering if you and Solita would meet with me this weekend maybe so I can ask you a couple questions. <clears throat> Sounds great. We'll see you then. Great. Click. It was awkward, but it was over. And I was so nervous in that moment because that, was, for me, was the moment of no return. 
It wasn't when I asked them for their blessing. It wasn't when I got on one knee and asked her. It was when I called to make the appointment. It was the point of no return, right? It was making a decision, the biggest decision and the best decision for my entire life. Now, that took faith, did it not? Did it take risk? Was there absolute certainty like a math equation? No. But I was making a decision based off the best evidence and off the best wisdom that I had and it ended up being one of the best decisions I've ever made. The same is true with faith. People think that this is, uh, how do I say this? When people are wrestling intellectually, they want certainty. And let me tell you, there will come a point where you can have all the evidence in the world and all the arguments in the world and every Christian apologist and every Christian philosopher and the smartest, most brilliant Christian intellectual minds in the world will all, will all say that the best arguments have a certain point where they go so far and then they end. And it has to be taken up by faith at some point. Because whether you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's the son of God or whether you believe that he is not, both of those decisions take a, a measure of faith. It's not like a math equation. Now, I would stand up here and I would die for the truth to tell you. I think all the evidence in the world points to this is the best option that Jesus actually did physically, literally rise from the dead and it changes everything. But it does take faith. So I'm not saying that. So what am I saying? What's the truth about anti-ask God? And what's this? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22. In just six verses, seven verses. He says here in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And these are the professionally religious people of the day. One of them, an expert in the law. Which, if you put on your business cards, expert in the Bible, probably not a good idea. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. See, what's really fascinating here in this story is somebody's not legitimately asking Jesus, hey, what's the most important question or what's the most important command in all of the Bible? Did it not say that he went to test Jesus? So if you're trying to have a Bible study debate with Jesus, that's also probably not a great idea. He goes to test Jesus with what's the most important. Why is that a test? Because in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are 613 commands. 613, and we, if the Bible gives a worldview that this book was written by human authors, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. So all 613 of them are important. And for them to go, which one is the most important? That's just any which way for them to have Jesus trip up. Because if Jesus picked the wrong one, they could have shot him verbally and logically said, ha ha, gotcha. So it's a trick. So ask, what's the most important one? 
Jesus totally ups the ante and says, well, clearly, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And by the way, you didn't ask this, but let me give you the second most important one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, you only asked me to give you the most important one. I just gave you two, and those two summarize all 613 in your face. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> Shut them up. It started a huge fight, which the fight culminates later on in Matthew if they decide to kill him because of his answer. Now, what does this have to do for today? Can we go ahead and put up verse 36 again? Or just go back to a couple slides, Susan? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. This shoots at the, the notion that God is a God who doesn't want you to ask questions. That God is a God who wants you to check your brain at the door. That God is a God who shames people who might be more left brain, more analytically minded, more engineer minded. What Jesus is saying here so clearly is if you are wired that way, you're welcome at the table. And by the way, I expect you to love me with your mind. Here's how this plays out. It plays out in two ways. It plays out for you as an individual, and it'll play out for our church corporately as a group of people. Here's how this plays out for you. What does it mean for you to love the Lord your God with your mind? Well, first it means this. It's okay to use your mind. It's okay for you to use your mind. You don't have to check your brain at the door. God made left-brained and right-brained people. Uh, I'm grateful that uh, God does that because I'm definitely a right-brained person, more of an artistic person. When God made me, he left my left brain out. And so um, Jesus teaches us to love the Lord with our minds. There's a rich history of Christians embracing this as a tradition. In fact, Christianity, it's not anti-evidence or anti-science. It's an evidence-based faith. Like I said earlier, it's based off the evidence of an empty tomb. In fact, when you're talking about faith and science, Christians were the ones who launched the scientific movement. Did you know that 40% of all Christians today are scientists? Did you know that? Or I would take that back, not 40% of Christians. <laughs> 40% of all scientists are Christians. There we go. I was like, that's right. Half the room in here, you're a scientist. Surprise. <laughs> in fact, um, theology was often talked about as the queen of the sciences in the early centuries. Um, from Sir Isaac Newton to modern-day geneticist Francis Collins. Here's a picture of Dr. Francis Collins. He's the head of the National Institute of Health. This man was on the Human Genome Project. He helped map the human DNA for genetic diseases. This guy is one of the most brilliant minds in the entire world, one of the most brilliant doctors and geneticists in the entire world, and he bows his knee at the throne of Jesus Christ. Yeah, amazing. 
I mean, this man was self-declared an obnoxious atheist until um, after he went to school and then became a doctor. He noticed some of his patients when they're going through intense suffering and death, how their faith gave them strength and comforted them. And he didn't understand it. And so he went to sit in the office of a Methodist pastor. Those Methodists, how about them, right? I'm going to break my arm, pat my own back. And he started asking questions. The Methodist pastor said, you sound a lot like a Christian author named C.S. Lewis. Here's a book of his called Mere Christianity. You should read it. And because of the arguments from C.S. Lewis about the universe had a beginning point, and if you're a scientist, unless you assume that there was somebody who helped create the Big Bang, you have no answer for how everything came into being. He believed in the God of the Bible, gave his life to Jesus, loves the Bible, reads the Bible, prays to Jesus, knows Jesus by faith through relationship with him powerful. It's okay to use your mind. Don't feel bad about it. Not only that, so here's how this plays out for you. It's okay for you to use your mind, but also how do you love God with your mind? How is somebody supposed to go about and do that? Well, uh, I'm going to put up a picture here. This is one of my mentors in life, just a wonderful man. That is Dr. Bob Stamps, was the dean of the chapel at Asbury Seminary. Um, this is the guy, if you've heard me talk about this before, he and his wife, um, who is a traveling nurse for Corey Ten Boon for 14 years. Yeah. So, um, so she has incredible life experience. He has incredible life experience. And when they came to work at Asbury Seminary, they moved into student housing just to pour into young couples. They lived four houses down from me, and we instantly became friends. I love that man. It says a lot about an institution and a teacher when the teacher moves into the student housing to pour into people, doesn't it? So he used to tell us all the time that he hated when people said, I'm going to worship and I'm going to learn. I'm going to pray and I'm going to study. He's like, the and there is totally wrong. They're the same thing. He used to rail on us, say, make your desk your altar. Because studying is actually a spiritual discipline. If you want to grow your mind, you'll actually grow your heart as well. There's not spiritual things and intellectual things. They're intertwined together. So if you want to love the Lord your God with your mind, make your desk your altar where you pray. Study Learn about God. Seriously give yourselves to the scripture. Read books. Grow your mind. Love Jesus with that discipline. He'll be honored by it and he'll grow your faith. And um, lastly, just for you, it means that our minds aren't enough. Your mind's not enough. Look at this in Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart. What's that next word? And... With all your soul, what? And all your mind. There's the heart and the soul and the mind. It's not heart or soul or mind. Whatever your personality fits, you just get to pick. For those of you who are more intellectually minded, the Lord wants you to love him with your mind and your soul, and your heart. And for those of you who are more emotive, more artistic, and you want to love God with your feelings, with your heart, and your soul, the Lord also wants you to love him with your mind. And when, um, I don't want to say this. 
I once heard somebody say to me, and it changed my life, that in Christianity, you find people of the warm heart who are also pursuing the mind of Christ. If you take vital piety with sound learning together, it changes everything. And here's the phrase. You want your mind to descend into your heart. And when that happens, it will burst into the flames of the Holy Spirit. But you've got to love him with your mind and let it descend the 14-inch journey into here together. Amen? That's it for you. But here's the implication for our church. And this is really important for Pastor Dale and I, for everybody to know. In verse 37 or 39, Jesus said this. 22 verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you remember what your faith journey was like? Who helped you step into faith in Christ? Or who is helping you step into faith? In Christ. Jesus is asking us to love other people as we love ourselves. Here's what that means. As a pastor, I know this. There are people who have different barriers to becoming a follower of Jesus. There are people who have an experiential barrier. Like they need to feel the presence of God. They need to have somebody pray over them and it blows their mind. They need to see the power of God on display, the mighty works of God moving by the power of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders. I was one of them. I became a Christian because I wanted the Holy Spirit. I love Pentecost Sunday. Mm, My thing. That's only one type of person. There are some people who not only want, who maybe not need an experience, but they want to see an example. They don't care about the hoopla. They think you're weird if you try to pray for them. They're not going to read anything. They're not going to do anything. But if they see you sacrificially loving somebody, they want to hear anything you have to say. One of our lead team members of our church, who's a wonderful dear friend of mine, was by his own admission, one of these, again, obnoxious atheists. They say it, not me. And he shamed anybody who believed in Jesus and he thought it was stupid until Pastor Dale showed up at the hospital when his dad was dying in the middle of the night after coming to Community of Hope twice. And Dale showed up and loved them in their greatest need. And he said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what church really you kind of go to. My mom has told me about this, but I want to hear whatever you have to say about God because of your example. People will see out here every two weeks or the the weeks when we do the food distributions out here where they see us feed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people with the food, with the help of the love of Jesus. And they'll look at that and say, I don't know what that is, but I want to hear. Some people need an experience. Some people need an example. And there are people who have real intellectual barriers. They don't need an experience. They don't need an example. They need a safe space to not be judged and to ask their questions. And we're going to give them that space to do it. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So check this out. Here's what's on the screen here. This is um, a graphic for our new summer discussion series called Who Needs God? This is not an announcement, okay? We're not preaching this to make announcements. Does everyone understand that? This is what we do to create spaces for people who have questions about God. 
as particularly this series, goes at the heart of what many common atheists or agnostics believe. And it's not attacking them, but it's helping people who think that way come and take a step in to be able to engage their intellectual barriers to faith. It doesn't start till the end of June. Pastor Jose is going to be leading it with Pastor Ephraim right here at the East Campus. But we're telling you now, a month ahead of time, so you can invite somebody. And here's what I want us to do. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. But I want everyone to take a moment. I want you to bow your heads. And we're going to pray. And I want all of you to carefully consider for a moment people in your life who have intellectual barriers to faith in Jesus. And I want you to think about them now. Who are the people in your life who are not followers of Jesus yet? Who have questions? Maybe it's you. I want you to think about them now. Lord, would you bring to mind, bring to our mind and bring to our hearts people who are far from you because they think you're the anti-ask God. just in the silence of your own hearts I want you to pray for them right now maybe it's a neighbor maybe it's a co-worker maybe it's a family member maybe it's a son or a daughter or a grandchild maybe it's a parent maybe it's your spouse pray for them ask the Holy Spirit to move in their life and to move in their questions Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you we see a God who commands us to love you with our minds as well as our hearts and as well as our souls. I thank you that you never ask us to check our brain at the door, but you welcome all the questions that you and your kingdom is not a house of cards, but an eternal kingdom that the gates of hell will not stand against. So, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to fall fresh upon us. Grow us to be able to love you with our minds. And, Lord, grow our community, especially those people who are far from you because of the real questions that they have and the intellectual barriers that they have to you. Bring them to us here at Community of Hope. Bring them here, Lord, so they may hear your good news. They may experience love of neighbor in this place and that they would turn in place their faith and their trust in you. Would you do it, we pray. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Friends, let's respond with worshiping this Jesus. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you are the exact representation of who God is. You are the exact representation of your Father. We worship you nothing else will do. Lord, we're here because we only want you. Lord, this is what all this is about. This is everything that we're trying to preach. This is everything we're trying to sing. It's all about you. Lord, would you give us all grace now in this moment to reach out to you and to touch you with our hearts, to touch you with our souls, and to touch you with our minds. 
we want to love you with everything, Lord. And then to walk out of this place and love others as you have taught us to love ourselves. We worship you. We love you. It's in your name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Friends, uh, we're going to have prayer team back here at this room. If you have anything you need prayer for, if you need healing, you need guidance, go pray over there. Otherwise, go in God's peace. We'll see you next week.